I'm so glad that we had the Boyd family uh, worshiping with us, and I would encourage you guys to continue to pray for them. Uh, as the Boyds are uh, working very diligently uh, in planting churches uh, throughout our area. They've got uh, works going in Sterling, they have works going in Soldotna, they have some things in Nilchak. They're really working hard to try to plant uh, churches all around. One of the churches that they've worked very hard on is a youth church they have in Amelcan Coffee in Soldotna. And they're having a lot of kids coming from all over the city and as you know, kids have a hard time social distancing. So I would encourage you to continue to pray for them that they stay uh, healthy and that they continue to do what uh, God has called them to do. So that being said, <clears throat> uh, I also want to encourage you guys to continue to uh, be faithful in our giving, even though uh, we're not face-to-face. -face. One of the ways that we've set up for that is through our online portal. Um, and you can find that online portal at uh, www.firstbaptistkenai.net. And uh, it should be pretty easy to find our online giving portal there with PayPal. So, that being said, uh, we're going to jump right into the sermon. And again, I encourage you guys uh, to begin, continue to pray for all of the needs, uh, not just in our congregation, but also in, um, in our community. So, starting in chapter 6, the first verse, it records, the uh, Bible says this. It says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120, 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners, the satraps, and the satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. The king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And then we're going to stop right there for a minute, because I think we need to just take a moment to really focus on what is being said here. And it sort of lays the groundwork. Some folks are trying to figure out what the time frame is. You know, we in the Western world, we like our time frames. We like our stories to be linear. And um, the reality is this is about two, maybe three years at most after the fall of Babylon. Uh, Daniel is fully into his 80th, uh, uh, 80th year of, uh, 80th decade of life, eighth decade of life. Um, and he is, um, uh, he is, so Daniel's full into his, uh, past his 80th year of life. And he's well into his uh, time period now as serving um, the third, really the third ruler uh, or more that has been put in front of him. So um, he's definitely a, a long-term civil servant. Um, and then we have Darius the king, the Mede, Darius um, the king. Uh, we don't really know a lot about this particular Darius, and we're not exactly sure who exactly it is. Uh, a lot of the historians and people that take uh, offense or umbrage against the Bible like to point to this chapter as something that um, is reason why uh, Daniel is not accurate. It must have been written at a different time because um, there was no actual records, historical records, that say that there was a guy named Darius that was the actual king over Babylon at this time frame that was 62 years old when he took over the kingdom according to the last chapter. And so... Um, there's a lot of questions as to who this, this guy is, um, and I would love to spend time looking at that, but the reality is it just detracts and, di and distracts us from the real focus of the, of the passage. Um, 
it's obvious that this guy Darius is as real as every other person that Daniel writes about. And just because we haven't found an archaeological evidence um, as to who this is, doesn't change it. Um, I'm sure that when the time is right, God will reveal that evidence to us if need be. And if not, well, that's okay too. Um, but some things are happening here. And we see that Darius is uh, appointing um, governors over his areas, the 120 satraps. That word satrap literally means defender of the realm or defender of the kingdom. Um, it is, uh, uh, it's a lower functionary. It's not a, uh, a main it's not the main governor. Um, it's uh, somebody that would be over a territory or region, mostly for tax purposes and for um, military uh, protocol and rule. And then, of course, we were, there were three commissioners or presidents, depending upon uh, what version you're reading. But those were, that word commissioner just simply means a, a prince, if you will, that was sort of placed over uh, the satraps. And Daniel was one of those three. So you end up with a triumvirate situation where you have three commissioners that were um, in authority over the entire kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Um, and one of those was Daniel. Now, Daniel is um, distinguishing himself, as he always has, um, and there's a purpose for this. You know, you look at verse 2 where it says that the king, um, the reason why they were put there was so that the, kings might, the king might not suffer loss. Obviously, we're talking about financial, uh, taxable income. There's definitely things there that the king needed to make sure that his kingdom was running smoothly, and he had to put trusted people in place. Um, and it was around that time that uh, Daniel was growing in his connection to King Darius and to the, uh, the other members of the court. Uh, we don't know if Daniel was fully in retirement at the fall of Babylon. Most people think that he was. But at this point, he's either come out of retirement or at least come more to the front uh, to resume some of the roles that he held when he was a younger man. And it's at this point that he's getting a lot of criticism. He's getting a lot, making a lot of enemies. The reality is, is that um, it's hard for any person that's in authority or leadership role not to acquire um, enemies. I mean, if you just look at the news this week and you see the different people in political office or wish to have political office um, in some of the presidential races and race, and then the uh, some of the races in the local um, uh, states. You see that 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 dirt is being dug up. People are are working overtime to try to tear down the powers that be. It's almost like that's a, a national pastime. Um, I, blame, I blame NASCAR for that. I really think that NASCAR has sort of taught people to wait for the car wrecks, you know, to cheer for those. Um, nobody, sh nobody should ever be happy when somebody else is, is hurt or their livelihood is destroyed, but yet we team seem to make it a national uh, pastime. I know my historian buffs would probably say that we did this right in the beginning when, uh, when we separated from England under King George, but um, I'm not going to go that far back. Either way, Daniel was put into this position of authority. And you notice what was said about him. He said he had an extraordinary spirit in verse 3, um, and that the king had planned on elevating him up above the other two commissioners. Um, and this was something that the other two commissioners did not wish to happen. Um, and then it says in verse 4 that the commissioners and the satraps, they gathered together to make an accusation, but they could find no evidence, no evidence for corruption. You know, as much as I would love to be able to say that about myself, um, the reality is none of us, no human being that I've ever known, um, can honestly say that there's n absolutely nothing about their life um, that is without reproach or without um, condemnation. Um, scripture says that we're all sinners. We've all fallen. 
Uh, the none are righteous, no, not one. Now, I have no doubt that Daniel had his had issues, and we just uh, don't know what they are. But whatever those issues were, whatever the sin that he may have had, um, however small that it was, <clears throat> there was no grounds of accusation or evidence for him to be able to be dismissed on the grounds of corruption. Nothing that the king would have him executed or eliminated for. And so they had to they had to conspire. Now, the neat thing about it, and we talked about this last week, you know, no book in the Bible has more phrases that are part of our our common culture than the book of Daniel. We talked about the fiery furnace. We're talking about your idol has the feet of clay. We've talked about uh, the handwriting on the wall or you've been weighed and, and found wanting. I mean, those are great phrases. But I tell you, there is one phrase that almost every single person I've ever met in my entire life um, recognizes, and that's being thrown in the lion's den. Um, it is part of our cultural context that we can't get away, away from. And Daniel is no different. And the next part of this narrative is, is simply that, um, that story that's unfolding in front of Daniel's eyes. Um, now, you know, we see that they couldn't find a reason to, uh, to convict him. And so um, in verse 5, we see that uh, these men said, we, we can't find any grounds to uh, accuse Daniel unless we find it against and with regard to the law of his God. Now, here's something that's really interesting to know. There are two things I think that we can take to heart about what Dan what we can say about Daniel and how we should be more like Daniel, evidently. Um, and that is, is that he was not a private um, Christian. He was his convictions were public. They weren't. He wasn't a secret disciple. Um, I've heard this idea and this phrase talked about. Well, I don't care what what happens in the privacy of your own home, or if you want to do that when no one's looking, so be it. Um, but the reality is, is that we need to be as authentic as we are, warts and all, ugly and all, sin and all, for in every aspect of our life. Because the last thing we want to do is present a false face to people. Um, the idea that we can have two different sides of us, something that happens when we are cloistered up in our house and something and how we act when we're in front of people. Uh, Daniel was not different. He was the same everywhere he was. I try myself to do that. I know I don't always succeed, but I try to always be the same person in the pulpit as I am in my office, as I am in the community, as I am at my house. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know sometimes that makes people uncomfortable because uh, I they like to say that well, pastor needs to have a needs to be a higher office and a higher calling, and and I would just say every time you put a man on a pedestal, you're you're setting him up for a fall. Um, I'm just an I'm just an elder in the church that um, has a different calling um, than than other folks, and yes, it is a higher calling in some areas, um, but the reality is is that we're all sinners and. That's the direction we need to pull from. So um, that's one thing. He was not a private Christian. His convictions were public. He was not a uh, he was not a, a, a secret disciple. And the second thing is is that he would not um, he would not compromise his convictions. That's something I think is incredibly powerful when you look at um, uh, how we are to be uh, Christians in today's world. Is we shouldn't um, we shouldn't compromise our convictions, whatever those convictions are. Um, I see that happening a lot of times with people when they try to get, uh, go along to get along or get along to go along, I think is the phrase, you know, where they just they accept whatever it is because it's, it's okay. Well, the reality is, is that we're living in a world now, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later when we get down to uh, some of the later verses, but um, the reality is, is that we're in a world today that's becoming increasingly secular, and we need to recognize that. 
and we need to recognize that some of the decisions and the choices that we're being asked to make now, now, <coughs> are um, incredibly difficult. Um, these are ethical, moral, and religious, and 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 sometimes even legal decisions that we're having to make, and that's not easy. Um, and so I would encourage you guys to be thinking about that as we continue on. Now you know this, the rest of the story. Um, the commissioners, they came to the king and they said, hey king, um, we need you to sign this document that if anybody in the next 30 days ask anything from anyone other than you, that they need to be killed. Now I'm still trying to rack my head around this whole, um, this whole idea. And I know it says, if anyone, but I was reading about that because I mean, if you think about it, the king doesn't see everybody. Um, and does this, uh, was this law applying just to his advisors and the royal court? Or was it applying to every single person in the entire um, uh, Medo-Persian Empire? Um, I believe that this is in reference, this, this law was probably just written um, that was going to be in, uh, enforced against the satraps and the commissioners. Uh, the people that would be directly dealing with the king um, by himself. And for whatever reason, the king just wasn't thinking clearly. Um, kings, you know, people in positions of authority sometimes can fall down and make mistakes. I don't know where the king's head was in this. I don't know if he was forward thinking or if he was, uh, uh, there's a little bit of um, pride issue there. And we've talked about pride in the past and how pride really can be the ministry or in, in, in the case of last year, or last week's uh, sermon, um, it, it can be a kingdom killer. Uh, pride is something that we should avoid at all times. Um, but we know that for 30 days, the king would act as a mediator for the gods. Now, this idea of a king being having that divine right to rule is something that's not new. It was, uh, it was running around uh, the world in Daniel's day, just as it was running around the world in the days when the United States uh, first became the United States in the 1700s. Um, the reality is, is that the kings of the land have always sought um, sort of a divineness to their rule uh, so that people don't question their authority. Uh, and the king here was, was basically making a statement that he would act as a mediator between men and God for that time period. Now, Scripture is pretty clear that the king's authority um, is not there. There's only one mediator between God and man, that's Jesus. And we know that. Um, and the king was uh, definitely overstepping his bounds. Um, and so here we come to verse 10. And this is sort of Daniel's, um, this is Daniel's response, right? So Daniel, look what it says in verse 10. It says, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Uh, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Now there is so much in that particular verse. I could probably spend the rest of my sermon just preaching on verse 10. Um, there's just so much in there. I mean, look what it says here. Daniel knew what was going on. He knew that the law had been signed requiring him to do something that he knew his God would not would not honor. And not only not honor, it would be a, a blatant, outright, heretical sin to do so. Um, and so even though he knew that, he went into his house. He didn't do it in private. He didn't shut his windows. And I know a lot of our Sunday school teachers will be the first one to say this. You know, he was out in the open, loud and proud, ready to jump up and tell everyone um, that he was pre or he was praying, but he didn't alter his plan. He wasn't being overly demonstrable. According to this, um, the very last part of the verse, this is what he had been doing 
previously. He had, he hadn't altered his course. This is the same way that he was doing it. So I guess part of that is you know we don't need to be overly dramatic when we're doing something that we know God wants us to do, even though the world says we shouldn't. We should just continue to do what we've always done, and that level of consistency will actually help uh, folks that are watching us to be more willing to trust in the God that we trust so deeply in. Um, <clears throat> you'll also notice that the chamber, the windows were open towards Jerusalem. And that asks the question, as we pray, should we pray towards uh, Jerusalem? I don't think that we should need to pray necessarily before Jerusalem, but I will say that for hundreds of years, um, since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, um, there has been a, 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 I guess, a desire for people to bury themselves with their feet facing east with uh, churches uh, facing the east because of the um, the discussion about uh, the return of the Lord and Savior and how he would he would he would come in a certain direction from the uh, from the east and that's where the the, the, the sound of the trumpet would um, uh, would be heard and so people don't want to be um, uh, you know feet first they, they want to go feet first to heaven not or whatever you know what I'm saying the point is is that um, there is that sort of idea that the eastward is what we should be facing when we're praying. Um, and Daniel sort of typified that. Now again, this is not a commandment saying we have to do that. Also, you notice something else, that he was kneeling down. Um, when was the last time we kneeled before the Holy God? Holy God? Um, when was the last time you knelt in prayer? I know we pray all the time. We pray when we're driving. We're, we pray when we're cooking dinner. We pray um, in various different states in our life as we go through our day. But how many times a day do we intentionally get on our knees before our God and pray? You know, I would say that if we're not doing that at least three times a day, then we're probably not being as biblical as we should be. Um, Daniel said three times a day he prayed and he knelt. Um, this is what he always did. He gave thanks to his God um, as he had been doing previously. So those are just some of the things that we can look at. But I think there's also something else that goes on here. And a few weeks ago, we had a discussion in our adult Sunday school class about the tension of, um, uh, of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, how it says that we should be obedient to all the laws of the land. And um, in contrasting that with, chapter, or with, with the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 29, where the, uh, the disciples were uh, taken in to the rulers of the Sanhedrin and was told that they needed to stop uh, proclaiming the name of Jesus as, as the Messiah. And they just simply said, we can't do it. We're going to do what our God's called us to do. And so there seems to be a dynamic tension between these two points of view. How do we live our life the way God wants us to and be obedient to the scriptures, um, especially when we're living in a world that is incredibly and increasingly more and more... Um, what's the word, uh, secular. Um, and the laws that they're passing seem to be more and more against the Word of God. Um, I would remind you that there were great, great people in history who we lift up as heroes of the faith um, that have stepped uh, away from the legal requirements of the law that the land they lived in in order to follow God's ultimate law. Like one of my favorites is Corrie Ten Boom, who defied the law of the Germans and was imprisoned for it because she could not uh, abide the destruction of the Jewish people. So I think we need to decide each one of the each one of us where our line is, and that decision needs to be found in the Word of God, not some arbitrary thing that we set up, but if from the Word of God. 
when the law of man transgresses the law of God, we need to do what the law, what God tells us to do first and let him deal with the consequences uh, for us and fight those battles for us. Um, and we don't always, we don't always uh, have a clear understanding of that in our day. But I do want to point out something that I thought, thought was kind of interesting when I was going through this passage. And that is that at least during our day and age, we have we are still in a nation that has has its roots in Christianity. Whether they are fully embracing the Christian ideals now um, is without question not happening. But we know that our country was founded on these godly ideals, so there's at least some connection or common ground. Unlike Daniel, whose nation that he served, both all three the the, the, the kings that he served, none of them were what you would call godly men who were living lives uh, from a godly perspective. These were pagan individuals who were polytheistic, worshiping multiple gods, doing horrible things um, in the name of their gods and their idols. Um, and they had very little connection to the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. But yet um, Daniel was still serving there and being, uh, and being consistent and open about who he was in front of those uh, those pagans. And so that being said, we're going to move on to verse 11. It says, The men came by agreement, and they found Daniel making a petition and supplication before his God. Um, wow. So again, you have that unity that's there. All the folks um, other than Daniel signed this paper and had the king do it. And then they all basically waited around for him to break the law, which he did on the first day, it seems. And... They, of course, went to the king and said, Hey, king, we got some issues. Um, this guy, Daniel, who, who you've appointed over, uh, uh, over all of us, he is not doing what you've asked him to do. He's breaking the law. And the law clearly states for that for punishment for breaking the law, he needs to be thrown into the lion's den. Uh, so, we see that um, the king is beside himself. Look where it says down there in verse 14. And as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel even until sunset. He kept exerting himself to rescue him. So look what it says there. The king was distressed. That word distress is actually like, like two or three little letters in Hebrew. It, 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 um, the word is uh, biosh or baosh. I think I'm pronouncing it right, um, and it literally means to to turn rancid, to <coughs> to make stink. Um, he felt so upset at himself that he felt like everything about him had become rancid. That's how disgusted he was, and he was disgusted with himself. Uh, the king wasn't mad at the satraps. He wasn't mad at the commissioners. He wasn't mad at anybody else. He was only angry at himself. Um, and then he set about everything in his power to be able to free Daniel from this law that he had written. But he couldn't. And at sundown, the king, the, the, the advisors, the nobles came to him and said, King, you don't have a choice. you got to do it. So Daniel was given, in verse 16, the king gave orders to Daniel. And he was brought and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Now, that's a wonderful phrase, and there's two different ways you can translate that phrase from the Hebrew that's there. Now, we know this this original 
chapter was written in Aramaic, then translated into Hebrew, then translated into Greek, and then that's how we get our our text from is from uh, mostly from that Greek translation. Um, and so, with those several levels of translation, sometimes it's not always easy to get the the full idiom that's here. Um, but most theologians are sort of torn between either the king is saying, "May your God, whom you serve, uh, deliver you," or and that's just like a hopeful suggestion, or he's just simply saying your God will um, himself uh, deliver you. Either way, we know that there's a strong note of hopefulness in here. Um, and a lot of commentators like to point to the fact that Darius was a pagan king. And you know something? Um, even though I just said a few minutes ago that you know Daniel serving a pagan king, and as far as we know, he probably was. Um, but the reality is, is we can't make a definitive statement about um, Darius's condition of his heart and soul. Uh, we can make supposition. Uh, the reason why I say that is because obviously Darius is pointing to God, to Daniel. He's not pointing out that uh, Daniel's going to be saved by Marduk or any of the other gods of uh, the Babylonians, nor any of the other gods of the um, Medes and Persians. Um, he's saying specifically, your God whom you serve will himself deliver you. Um, and so I find it interesting that this pagan king would make that declarative statement uh, to Daniel with that hopefulness. And some people feel even a level of confidence uh, based upon what had happened in Daniel's life in the past. Personally, I feel that Daniel was had, um, had witnessed to this king just like he had witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar, just like he unfortunately tried to witness to Nebuchadnezzar's grandson who was killed so that Darius could become king from the Medes and the Persians. And I feel like Daniel was consistent in this um, because he was consistent in everything he did in the faith. And to share about his God to the king he served would have been only natural for him. And at, at his age, I don't think he really cared that the king wasn't real happy with him. He had lived a full, rich life and served his God every day. Why would he be concerned if the king didn't like what he had to say? I'd almost think that the king would look at that kind of wisdom as kind of refreshing when you have a, a court full of sycophants that would just tell him whatever he wants to hear. But here, old Daniel, who's lived, you know, uh, several lifetimes and had jobs that would make any had had several jobs and any one of which would make any of us envious of um, would just be plain and speak to him just as 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 anybody else and give him the straight story and I think that's an important thing that Daniel had going for him so we see that and uh, the king went off to his palace and he spent the life he spent the night fasting and with no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him um, I heard one theologian say that uh, that Darius probably had a worse night than Daniel did. Daniel was probably pretty comfortable sitting there in the lion's den, um, hanging out with all those lions um, and God, um, whereas uh, uh, Darius was not. Um, it says that he didn't eat. He had no entertainment brought to him. Now, it's interesting, the phrase there in Aramaic, no entertainment, is a word that's only used here. It's not. We can't find it in any other scripture or, or scroll um, that's out there. We really don't know the full meaning of what it means to say he had no entertainment. And a lot of theologians have made much of this. But I think the point is, is that he was not distracted. He was focused on one thing, and that was praying. So this comes up, that whole other thing is, is... 
if the king was was fasting in the word fasting there he gives us the implication is that is that he was praying if he was up all night praying and fasting for Daniel that there must have been a connection between uh, Darius and this God whom Daniel served whether it was Darius's God yet or not I think he's getting close I think this might be that pivotal moment where God reveals himself to yet another world ruler that Daniel served um, for better or for worse and uh, the king rose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. I love the way that they use the phrases here, in haste. Uh, we've talked about this numerous times in various Bible studies and sermons that I've preached. The, the, the leading men of that day, uh, rulers, noblemen, um, anybody that was, uh, had any kind of wealth or influence, patriarchs in a village, um, local mayors, um, elders of any type, would never run. And so that word make haste literally means to run. It means to go so swiftly that you would outpace people around you. Um, you know, the idea that, that he was moving with this kind of haste was so uncharacteristic and undignified of a king or a man of his station, but yet he didn't care. He had so little concern for his own reputation. He needed to know the outcome at that, at that, at that lion's den. And so he made haste. He came near. He cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke to Daniel and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. I just want to stop there. You know, that's a title, man. You know, Daniel's had a lot of titles in his life. And I imagine now that he's sitting up in heaven, hanging out with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, hanging out with God, uh, you know, enjoying angels and all that heaven is. Um, I'm sure that's the title that matters the most to him. Not that he was the Lord of the Magi, not that he was the, uh, the, the lead commissioner over the entire, uh, prov the entire country of, of the Medes and the Persians. Um, it's that he was the servant of the living God. I find it interesting that, the, that this pagan king would actually refer to our God, not necessarily his God, as the living God. Um, he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, your God, whom you constantly serve. I wish we'd take a moment to, to touch on that particular word, constantly serve. Now, if that isn't a powerful phrase, I don't know what is. The word there in the, in the original language says to dwell with, right? We look at constantly serve and we get those phrases and we say, okay, we need to constantly be there. It means we, we show up at church on Sunday morning, we show up on Sunday night, we show up on Wednesday night because we're good Christians and that's what we do. And that's what it means to constantly serve God. Well, that's not what it means. I'll be honest with you. If you're looking for your marker of faith and, and, and connection to God with the number of times you go to church in a week, then you're looking in the wrong direction right? We've talked about this before, the idea of that steadfastness of God, um, the word hesed, which is found throughout the entire Old Testament, um, the idea of that covenantal love. We've talked about how that covenantal love flows directly into the discussion that Jesus had in the beginning of the first chapter of John, where it says that that um, he dwelt among his people and his people knew him not, right? Um, the idea um, that that idea of abiding with his people and all throughout the book of John, it talks about abiding with him, abide in him. Um, and that phrase all goes back to this particular phrase right here that says to dwell with. Daniel dwelt with his God. 
He didn't, it's not that he constantly served him. He dwelt with him. He was so in connection with the living, breathing spirit of God that every move he made was in concert with where God was because where God was, Daniel was. And where Daniel was, God was. He dwelt side by side with God. Beautiful picture that we see in the original language. Uh, and uh, the king went on to say, whom you constantly serve and... And has he been able to deliver you from the lions? The question is put out there. And Daniel spoke up, O king, live forever. Wow, what wonderful words. And here's the passage that I've actually liked to underline um, in there. It says, My God has sent his angel and shut the mouths of lions, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, innocent before God, and also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. I want to look at something. Remember how we said a minute ago about that word that was used for constantly serve and it means to dwell with? Well, think about this for a minute. Almost every theologian worth his salt would agree on this, that when, when Daniel says, my God sent his angel, that angel is, in my opinion, Jesus Christ. And so he dwelt with Daniel through the lion's den. He didn't rescue him out of it. He didn't take him off to a spa somewhere in the in 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 the in the far uh, reaches of the desert so he could enjoy a you know a hot springs or a um, or a sauna. Um, he dwelt with Daniel during that and protected him all the way through it. But can imagine what's going on. Dan, Daniel had an opportunity to spend the entire night with Jesus. Think about that for a minute. You know, how many prophets in the Old Testament could say that? How many people in the Old Testament can say that? And the neat thing about it is, is that God gives each and every one of us the right to call ourselves the sons of God, which means we have the ability to have that same level of connection that Daniel had that night with Jesus that we can have with Jesus every single day of our lives. This is a beautiful picture of what our relationship with God's going to be as we dwell side by side with him. And he is constantly with us. We can see that. So the same God that sent his angel, which I believe with Jesus Christ, into the den with Daniel was the same one that wrote on the wall the previous chapter, the same one, as I mentioned before, that knelt in the dirt and wrote in the dust, the same one who stretched his arms out on that cross and said, it is finished. This is the same God of all creation, Jesus Christ, who stood in front of the powers that be and said, I will allow the sin of humanity to become mine, that they might become Uh, they might become the righteousness of God. They might actually become the sons and daughters of the living God. This is a powerful statement. Um, The king was so pleased that he he gave orders that Daniel be taken out of the lion's den. And you know that just to to quell the rumors that the lions that were in there were old and feeble and not hungry, um, he threw all those, uh, all the, the evil... Um, advisors and their families, which I think is kind of sad um, because it says in verse 24 that their children, their wives, their and themselves were cast in the lion's den. And it says that uh, before they even reached the bottom of the lion's den, the lions uh, leapt up and overpowered them and crushed their bones and ate them all together. And then we come to the final part of this um, chapter as we come to the end of our message. And that is that Darius makes a decree, much like the decree that uh, Nebuchadnezzar made. I believe this is a statement of faith 
that if you start looking at the nature of the Medes and Persians and what happens, and you need to know something just for the little background is, right about the time, the same time this is happening, um, Ezra has already left um, the former Babylonian Empire, now the Medes and Persians, and has gone back into Jerusalem to begin the process of rebuilding the temple while Daniel is having these situations happen in his life. This is already going on. And I believe that this the man that we're talking about here is probably none other than King Cyrus himself who made the original statement um, of faith uh, to send back the Jews to their homeland. And I believe this is the king here signing a statement. And look what he says. I make this decree that in all my dominion, in my kingdom, everywhere that, that there are men, that they are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and endures forever. And his kingdom is one which will, will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? And so Daniel enjoins success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Again, I think this part of the, um, that last verse is a good indication that he was, um, that Cyrus and Darius were probably the same one. And I can get into a discussion about that later, but I don't need to. But this is really the end of the narrative part of the book of Daniel. And we need to ask ourselves, well, so what? You know, what do we, what can we do? What can we take away from this? What, how can we apply this to our life? The reality is, is that um, there is, there are lions that we face, but there is a chief lion, as I mentioned earlier uh, this morning, that is always seeking to devour anyone that he can. Um, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, just like Daniel, even though he was being faced with a ton of critics, and he had uh, criticisms and irritations and people that wanted his wanted his head on a silver platter. Um, no matter what they felt about him, Daniel was comfortable and was able to rest in the knowledge that God had him. And that's something we need to take to heart, is that no matter who comes against us, there is only one person that accuses the brethren, and that is Satan. And if any time that we jump on board these kinds of accusations against other people, we are not taking up the cause of Christ. We are taking up the cause of Satan. And if and that's just the way it is. And so I would encourage you to be thinking about this. You know, how do we apply this to our lives? We need to be very cautious about what side of the fence we're going to be on. Are we going to be on Daniel's side? Or are we going to be on the critic side? Um, we know how well that worked out for the critics. How well is that going to work out for Daniel? Uh, the other side of it is, are we going to be consistent? Are we going to seek to live lives that's blameless um, and, and above report, reproach in front of men? None of us can be sinless, but all of us can strive to be holy. The Bible says to be holy uh, because he is. There's no expectation that we're going to be able to succeed all the time. But there's an understanding that if we're not trying, we've already failed. And so as we move through our life and we seek areas of, um, of comfort and victory, we need to move forward in this. Um, and the other thing to think about is this, is that Americans, we don't know how to suffer. You know, a lot of times people look at the lion's den and they say, oh, God rescued Daniel from the lion's den. But we forget the phrase of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah when they were about to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And that was simply this, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. And I think sometimes we don't recognize that. 
I remember reading an article um, in, in, a, in a medical journal uh, a couple months ago, and it was they were talking about how some Eastern doctors that came from Thailand and India and some of these other areas, and they were doing some rotational observations in some of the larger hospitals in New York, in New York City. And the one observation that every one of them came away from was, is that American patients don't know how to suffer. Um, in fact, they avoid it and run from it in all, in all obstacles, in every chance they get. Um, which I think is a, is, a, is a sad commentary on our, on our culture, is that we flee from any form of suffering and, and turbulence. One of the things that I hear all the time uh, asked, me, asked about me uh, from churches is, will the church go through the tribulation? Because it seems like that's what I get from American folks, is will we go through the tribulation? Now, I don't believe for a minute that the church is going to go through the tribulation that's talked about in, um, in Revelation. I do believe that uh, before all that happens that uh, we will be raptured out and the bride of Christ will be taken up and we have things we're going to be doing in heaven while things are going to be continuing to go down here on earth. But that doesn't mean we're not going to face persecution. The reality is, is that the church has been suffering persecutions from its inception. The reality is, is that every time the church has needed to grow, persecution arose. It wasn't because the persecution didn't come up because people were happy and already growing. It came because they needed to grow. Um, the reason why the persecution hit Jerusalem's church so hard was because they had gotten complacent and they weren't going to the world. And so God had to move them out of Jerusalem. And it's been that way ever since. The reality is, is that the persecuted church is the norm. What we have in America is abnormal. We should hold on to it as long as we can, but understand that it won't last like this. There will come a day when we will be as persecuted as any other church that's been persecuted in the history of Christendom. And I don't look, I don't look forward to those days, but I know those days will be coming. And I look at the culture and the way the world's shifting right now, and I feel like we are not on a slow descent, but we are on a roller coaster racing downhill to the very bottom. I don't know when it's going to end, and I know for me, I kind of like to get off that roller coaster before it crashes, but I see it coming really quickly, and who knows where it's going to be. So I would encourage you to be consistent, and when the time comes and the persecution is at your door, you have a choice. You can be like Daniel, or you can be like not Daniel. For me, I'd rather be like Daniel. Um, whether I die or not, it's not relevant. What matters is that I am consistently faithful to my God, and I am consistently faithful to the convictions that he's given me. So I encourage you to be thinking about that this week. Um, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, if you're sitting at home and, and you're wondering um, what to do now, there are going to be people on the chat um, that will be glad to talk to you about Jesus. And I encourage you to reach out to somebody in the chat window in a private message way and ask them how you can come to know Christ as your Savior. And they'll be more than happy to share. For the rest of us, I encourage you to look deep in your heart and life and ask yourself, who are you? Just like I said last week, are you the woman in the middle of that, of that ring of stones? Are you the one of the ones holding the stones? Are you a disciple standing off to the side wondering what's going to happen? Um, who are you in those scenes? Are we the critics or are we the ones that are sitting in the lion's den right where God wants us? And what are we going to do? Are we going to rest in him or are we going to move forward? So 
that's that's basically the essence of what we have today. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to have a time of music, and when the music is over with, um, the service will be concluded. Um, I thank you for joining with me. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be here. Father, I ask personally for your healing. I ask for your comfort as you guide me through this um, uh, this virus that I have. I ask you to be with the, uh, the members of the congregation that were in church last Sunday and that have been around me in the last two weeks. Father, I ask that they will not have any even inkling of this virus, that, that you have shielded them from it. And Father, I ask that you'll give us the courage and strength to step forward where you've called us to and to be the servant that you've called us to be, that we might be able to display the love and the honor that you've called us to display towards each other as well as towards you. Father, we love you so much. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.